Well, good morning, church family. So good to be here. I bring you greetings from New Community Church. As it's been stated, I am the pastor emeritus. I haven't figured out what that means. I think it means old and retired. I'm looking at it in the Greek to find out if I can discover exactly its meaning. But it's always a joy to be with you. Uh, I want to get right into it because I've got plenty to cover. And so take your Bible or turn on your Bible, whichever one you have, and go to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27. Now, as many of you know, God granted wisdom to King Solomon when he made his beginning of his succession following uh, being the king after David. And you might recall that King Solomon uh, was told by the Lord, ask what it is that you want from me. And King Solomon said what he wanted the most was discernment, the capacity, the ability to distinguish between error and truth, right and wrong. And the reason that he wanted that discernment is because his job as king would be to also be the judge of the nation of Israel. And so he wanted that capacity, that ability, so that he could be an effective king and an effective judge. And as many of you know, God granted him wisdom, wisdom from above, perfect wisdom. And in the early days of Solomon's reign, he began to compose a series of pithy statements, statements, truisms, if you will, called Proverbs. Proverbs are moral statements or illustrations that teach the fundamental realities of life as they emerge from this gift of wisdom that God had given to him. You are familiar of them. Many of you quote the Proverbs that are contained in the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Well, that is a great lifetime passage that provides great direction. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 32 says that he spoke, Solomon did, 3,000 Proverbs. And fortunately for us, we have 513 of them contained in the book of Proverbs. And one such Proverbs gives us some directives into a life principle dealing with the matter of exercising tough love in the context of valued relationships and valued friendships. And the particular proverb that I'm speaking of is the one that I directed you to, Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 through 6. There, Solomon, under divine inspiration, wrote these words, Better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Solomon informs us that a direct rebuke, when it's needed, especially as it pertains to a valued relationship, is far better than unexpressed or hidden love. A rebuke is when you correct someone with the truth, someone who is thinking incorrectly, someone who is behaving 
independent of God's standards, someone who is believing something that is not true. And the admonition here of this particular Proverbs is to, if you love them, bring correction to them. Don't hide your love by recognizing they need correction but not giving the correction. And then he says in verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And what he is saying is it's better to have a needed rebuke than insincere expressions of affection for someone who presents himself or herself as a friend when in fact they are an enemy. The truth of the matter is friends wound you. Real friends, true friends, valued friends, especially in the body of Christ, may wound you from time to time by bringing correction, loving correction, by bringing a rebuke when you're thinking incorrectly, when you're behaving incorrectly, when you're believing wrong things. And that is not because they hate you. In fact, it's a demonstration, visible, tangible demonstration of real love. So, in the Bible, I notice that there's plenty of examples of rebukes. The very first one that you find is in Genesis chapter 3. And there we find God rebuking Adam and Eve because they, they went against his stated will and brought sin and death into the world. Later in 1 Samuel 13, 9 through 14, you have Samuel rebuking King Saul about unlawful sacrifices that he was making. And perhaps one of the most famous rebukes was done by Nathan, the prophet, who rebuked King David with a parable because of David's effort to hide his sin of adultery and being complicit in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, 2 Samuel 2, 12, rather, 1, and 1 through 12. It was Ezra who rebuked the men of Judah in Jerusalem regarding marriages to idolatrous women, Ezra chapter 10. By the way, Malachi had to do the same thing. He had to rebuke the men of Israel for marrying pagan women while at the same time breaking faith, moving away from the vow that they had made with the women of their youth, their wives, the ones who bore them children. The Lord, he rebuked Israel and Judah for their idolatry and their immorality by sending several prophets to them, warning them of the coming judgment. He told them, listen, a king from the north is coming, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be my instrument of judgment upon you unless you repent. And God did this because he loved them. And the prophets did it in the same manner. But I suppose there's one rebuke that I guess you would least expect to happen. It, it's a rebuke that took place among recognized, very recognized church leaders. In the passage that we're going to study today, we have the Apostle Paul, the great theologian, the great defender of our faith, the great missionary who is going to rebuke none other than the Apostle Peter. 
the one who was recognized as the head of the apostles, the one who walked with Jesus during the entire time of his earthly ministry, the one who had witnessed Christ going to the cross, who had seen the resurrected Lord and watched him ascend to the right hand of the Father. But we have this unusual situation where the Apostle Paul is going to bring a rebuke to Peter, and there's a very good reason for it. Because Peter's behavior was acting in opposition to some fundamental teachings of the church. His behavior. His behavior was acting and putting at risk such things as the doctrine of justification by faith. His behavior was acting contrary, Paul's going to say, to the truth of the gospel. And his behavior was contrary to the unity that we all have in Christ. And so Paul, compelled by his observance of this behavior, compelled by his love, not only for Peter, but for the church and for the purity of Christian doctrine, brought a much-needed rebuke. And that's recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in 11, verse 11 and going to verse 21. Now, right from the beginning, I've got to give you some background on this book, the book of Galatians. Galatian, Galatia uh, is a region in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and this letter is addressed to those churches that existed in the southern region of Galatia. They would include such churches as Antioch and Lystra, Iconium and Derbe. They were churches that both Paul and Barnabas first brought the gospel to on their first missionary journey. And the central theme of the book of Galatians is identical to the central theme of the book of Romans. The central theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith and his defense of it, his description of it. Here it's polemic. He's defending the gospel, the purity of the gospel. He's defending that doctrine. Are we declared right standing with God on the basis of faith alone or is there something else that we need to do? Is there some observance of rituals? Is there some observance of festivals? Do we need to do this in combination with our faith in order to be declared right standing with God? So Paul was prompted to write this letter because following his first missionary to these cities, a sect of the Pharisees called the Judaizers came to this particular area and they were preaching a distorted gospel. The idea of their distorted gospel was simply this. If you Gentiles want to become Christians, you first had to become Jews, proselytes, converts to Judaism. You needed to be circumcised. Some in this sect would even say, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. 
So if you Gentiles really want to be declared right with God, it is necessary that you follow the rituals, follow the dietary restrictions, follow the ceremonies of Judaism, and then you'll be right standing. And it was so disappointing to Paul because some of the people, some of these Gentiles who rejoiced greatly when they heard the gospel of grace, were buying into this distorted teaching. Matter of fact, let me just show you something from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some here who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, eternally damned. That's what that word means. And he says in verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And what is that gospel? Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, which proves he actually died. And then three days later, he conquered over sin and death by his resurrection. And the Bible admonishes us to respond to that gospel with repentance and faith. Repentance is a radical change of mind about yourself, that you're a sinner who desperately needs to be saved. About Jesus, he's more than a religious figurehead. He is the exclusive Savior of the world. And then take your trust. Whatever you are trusting in to save you, transfer it over to Christ and him alone. That's the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of God's grace, that salvation comes to us as a gift from God. It's never anything we could merit. Salvation is never human merit. Someone has said, Christianity as a belief system, especially in terms of what it believes about entrance into God's kingdom, entrance into salvation, is characterized by the word done. All the other religious systems are characterized by the word do. There's something you have to do. And those Judaizers of the first century were promoting the do system. There's something you have to do. So Paul rebukes them quite clearly on this matter, these Galatians. But by the time we get to Galatians chapter 21, there's a situation that takes place when Peter comes to Antioch. Now, let me just tell you, Antioch was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was the largest of the cities. It was the church first, this one in Antioch, that sent missionaries to preach the gospel. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, you will read that it was the leadership of the church while praying that the Spirit of God directed them to choose Paul and Barnabas to bring the gospel. And they brought the gospel. They brought the gospel to the other regions of Galatia. But it was while Peter was there in this city 
that Paul observed some behavior that prompted him to respond with a loving rebuke. So let's look first in our outline at the cause for Paul's rebuke. The cause for Paul's rebuke. Verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In the original language, stood condemned means he was demonstrably guilty of doing wrong. It wasn't that he was saying something wrong. He was doing something that had a message that was incorrect and corrupting. And so he was rebuked. By the way, the word Cephas, it says in that verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is the Aramaic name for rock. Some of you remember what uh, Jesus did when Simon came to meet Jesus. Jesus said, from now on, you will be called Petras, rock, small rock. Translated into English, it's Peter. So when you're looking at uh, Simon, he's also called Cephas. He's also called Peter. And some people say that he had a foot-shaped mouth because he always seemed to put his foot in his mouth on many occasions. Well, this time it has to do with his behavior. And Paul says when he came to Antioch, when Peter came, I had to oppose him to his face. In other words, this had to be a something done publicly. Why does it have to be done publicly? Because both Peter and Paul were recognized religious authorities. He was, Paul was, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter, he was the apostle to the Jews. Matter of fact, some scholars say you can divide the book of Acts. The first part of it has to do with the ministry of Peter. The second part has to do with the ministry of Paul. And so these, this man is a very significant, very influential leader. And if he's doing something wrong, someone who loves him and who loves the church has to speak up. And in this case, it had to be public because the lesson had to be widespread and it had to be brought to the church. Well, what did he do that was so wrong? Look at verses 12 and 13. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw, holding himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. So prior to these men coming from James, what does that mean, coming from James? These were men who came from the mother church in Jerusalem. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was recognized as its leader. Now, we don't have any proof that they were commissioned by James, but perhaps they went to Antioch because there was some explosive evangelism that was taking place in, in, in Antioch, and perhaps they wanted to see that. We don't know what drove them there, but there's nothing in biblical scripture that tells us that James commissioned them, but they came. And when they came, Peter changed a habit of his. Prior to their coming, he consistently participated in fellowship dinners with Gentile people. 
I like the way Dr. MacArthur explained it here. Until the men from James, and I'm quoting him, came to Antioch, he was participating with the church in a model of fellowship of Jewish and Gentile believers together who were freely expressing, deeply cherished their love and liberty in Christ. And so in other words... They were demonstrating by these meals that Peter and other Jews were having with the Gentiles something that the gospel and only the gospel can do. And that is to take people who were formerly estranged, formerly separated, formerly segregated, and brought into one new body, which is called the church. And that dinner symbolized that. But then suddenly... These men from James called the party of circumcision, Jewish men. Apparently, they got the message across to Peter and to other Jews in Antioch that it was required of them to eat separately from the Gentiles to keep the kosher dietary laws found in the Bible. The circumcision party were those Jews who believed in Jesus. They did. They believed that he was the Messiah. But they advocated following the ceremonies of the Mosaic law, at least regarding circumcision and food and special days. And even though these men were from James, they were a part of the church in Jerusalem, they wrongly believed that Jewish believers were still obligated to keep the dietary laws, which would mean that they would have to eat separately from the Gentiles, unless they taught the Gentiles to convert to Judaism and observe the dietary restrictions and the other ceremonies. And no doubt they exhibited these Judaizers their disdain toward Peter and other Jews who participated in these fellowship suppers. It was against what the Bible taught in the Old Testament. Now, why did God give this restriction, dietary restriction? You need to understand the reason for that. Some people be, think because he wanted his people to be healthier, to eat healthier food. That's not at all the reason. The reason that God gave the dietary restrictions to the Israelites is because he wanted them to maintain a separation from the Gentile people because if they developed unholy alliances, they would depart from their commitment and their love for God and Him alone. In other words, God knows omnisciently that the pathway to apostasy is often through unholy alliances. That's why he told them so many times, when you go into the country, when you go into the land that I'm sending you, don't take their sons as husbands for your daughters. Don't give your daughters to them. Don't intermingle with them. Don't learn from them. But as you may know, when the Apostle Peter was sovereignly and providentially directed to bring the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius, God removed the dietary restriction. You say, well, why did he? Because Gentiles would now receive the gospel 
and Gentiles would now be a part of the church. Matter of fact, let me show you that in Acts chapter 10, just so that we have this as a context to drop this story into. In Acts chapter 10, I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. It says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. You know what he's saying? He's saying it to God himself who's speaking to him. I have not violated the dietary restrictions. I have never consumed anything you told me not to consume. Verse 15, and a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this vision uh, which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions from Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon who was called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgiving. These are Gentile people. For I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. For what reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, uh, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews, was divinely directed by the holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear a message from you. So they invited them in, and he, they gave him lodging. So the point is, Peter knew that, I mean, by experience, Peter knew that the dietary restrictions had been removed. But he just he demonstrates to me that even people with convictions, theological convictions, can get weak in the knee if they're concerned about what people think. It can be a source of compromise when you're fearing people. Did you notice there? It says in that verse, take a look in verse 12 again at the end, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. This is what can happen to anyone. This is why our convictions, we must stand upon them. Even if people that we have a high regard for change their minds. But instead... He gradually began to be absent. He gradually would not come again. So when Peter saw, or when Paul saw Peter's behavior, he saw it as a threat to the doctrine of the freedom that they have in Christ. He saw it as a threat to the unity of the church. He saw it as a threat to the doctrine 
of justification in Christ alone. And it's so sad because, as we said, Peter had gotten the word from God that this should not separate people. And the sad thing is this, people. Take a look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? It's when you state your formal faith, but you live differently. When you say you believe something, but your lifestyle says something else. That's the core of hypocrisy. And it's, it's sad because it even spread to Barnabas. Barnabas is, is given the name Barnabas because he was considered to be the great encourager. And yet he was taken in by this same thing. So let's now look at the content. What's the content of Paul's rebuke? Beginning in verse 14. He said, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, can I just stop there and tell you what an indictment. What an indictment. My heart would sink if anyone said, Pastor Jerry is not straightforward with the truth of the gospel. Now when he says that, he doesn't mean that Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews no longer believed in the content or the essence of the gospel. No, they still, Peter and Barnabas, held faithfully to the content of the gospel. What's the content? That Christ died for our sins, the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ rose from the grave, as I explained to you earlier. And, and if you believe in that, repent and believe in that, you have eternal life. They didn't change their minds about that. Peter and the other Jews who committed this hypocrisy still believed in these things that were precious. However, and get this folks, their actions were at odds with the truth of the impact that the gospel brings to the truly converted. In other words, Peter still believed the essence of the message of the gospel. He was acting contrary to the effect of the gospel message that it has on those who truly come to know Christ. You see, when people believe in the gospel message to save them and to justify them in the sight of a holy God, they are now, listen to me folks, united with others who believe that message who may have been formally estranged from them. Do you know that the Gentiles and the Jews had a long, long centuries of history of hostility? They hated each other. For a number of reasons. But then the Gentiles hear the gospel message, the same message that the Jews heard, and they both believe that same message. And now they have been brought together into one new man called the church. Matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that's the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church is that both Jews and Gentiles have been, become members of the body of Christ and fellow inheritance of, uh, that comes to us from 
Jesus, they share in common. And yet this, this moving away from them, this separating from them because you fear certain people, is contrary to the truth of the gospel. Not only in that sense, but in the sense of you're sending also a message to these Gentiles that they're not justified by faith alone. But they also had to observe the dietary restrictions and the ceremonies that are required in the Bible. So the idea here is that not all true believers, all true believers, I should say, the, the idea here is that it's all true believers stand level at the foot of the cross, no matter their national origin, no matter their gender, no matter the color of their skin, no matter any historically embedded segregation. In the body of Christ, get this, we are no longer to have any ethnic separators that divide the body of Christ which Christ died to unite. And this act was doing that thing, dividing. Take a look in the third chapter, chapter 3 and verse 28. It says, there is neither, of Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Those things that, that separated you in, in the culture in which you exist, those labels that were placed upon you and were used to perhaps alienate yourself from someone else in the church and because of the gospel, they're no longer, no longer in effect. You are one in Christ. In our world, we, we came up with something called the United Nations with the grand purpose of uniting the nations. And the only thing that they're united in, the United Nations, is their hatred for America and Israel. But they certainly have not united. Because only in the gospel do you find such reconciliation. It's only in the gospel that you find true racial reconciliation. And this truth is a time for us today, isn't it? You see, the world attempts to reconcile people with the creation of institutions and external laws which primarily regulate behavior. The gospel. The gospel transforms hearts and gives people a new perspective of other people. No matter their feelings in the past, if they're genuinely saved, those feelings, those barriers dissipate. But Peter's fear drove him to separating from the fellowship meals with the Gentiles, and that was at odds with the truth of the gospel message. Peter's actions communicated to these Gentiles that observance of the dietary laws had to be observed in order to be justified, right standing in the sight of God. And boy, if you open that door, it doesn't stop with dietary laws. You'll have to observe other mandates regarding circumcisions and 
holidays and festivals. So this is an attack on the unity of the body of Christ. This is an attack on the gospel of grace. This is an attack on justification by faith alone. So is a rebuke needed? Especially if this is done by one of the leaders of the church. They were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel. And that truth is that the gospel unites people into one new man, which is the body of Christ. Now let's go back again to Galatians chapter 2, and I want us to look at the last part of that 14th verse. He said, you know what, Peter? If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see what he's doing here? Peter is saying, um, Peter and others who joined him in this hypocrisy had already been eating with the Gentiles. No doubt consuming food that was not in accordance with the dietary laws. Peter finally got a grip on what barbecued ribs taste like. He was enjoying a ham sandwich and all the other things that his Gentile friends ate. But then these men come on the scene and he begins to withdraw, separate. What hypocrisy. Paul caught him in the act. Hey, Prior to their coming, what were you doing? You were eating with them every day. But now these men come and you begin to back off. How confusing is that? So Peter's actions, along with the others, like Barnabas, were contrary, contrary to these precious doctrines, doctrines designed to unite us and not divide us. Take a look at verse 15. He continues with the content of his rebuke. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners among Gentiles. What do you mean by that? Being Jews by nature just simply means our parents were Jews and their parents were Jews and the parents of our great-grandparents were, were Jews. We have a history of being Jews. And yes, there are certain spiritual advantages to such a heritage. We are the people that God has given the covenant promises to. We are the people that have the law was given to us. We are the people from which the Messiah comes. We were not sinners among the Gentiles. Now, that was a derogatory way that Jews described Gentiles because Gentiles were without that law. And so they made up their own morality and their own ethics, and oftentimes they were contrary to the moral mandates of God. But look at what he says in verse 16 to complete this thought. He says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the, of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's almost like a redundant statement, but it's a good one. He is saying, Peter, you and Barnabas and myself and all the other Jews, we know from experience, we did not get right standing with God 
on the basis of law-keeping. That's not the purpose of the law. The law was never given by God so that we can try to observe it, obey it meticulously, and hopefully enter into heaven. He's saying, how did we get justified, Peter? You know we got justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, because no one gets justified by the works of the law. You say, how come? Well, I told you before, the works of the law, what's the purpose of the law? You know what the purpose of the law is? Well, let me give you an illustration first. This morning when I got up in the hotel room, I went in, I looked at the mirror, and I said, Oh, Lord, I've been struck by something, a car or something, during the night. I, I, I don't have very much hair, but it was like in this direction. And, you know, I, what happened to me? And so I, I began to repair the damage, if you will, that somehow happened to me in my sleep. So what did the mirror do? It simply reflected reality. It simply reflected reality. That's what I looked like, and there was nothing that going to change it unless I began to do the changing, you see. But how stupid would it be for me to try to take the mirror off the wall and begin to rub it on myself to make myself better? That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to reflect reality. It, let me show you that from the Scripture, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Here we go. And I want to look specifically at Romans 3, 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Accountable to God for what? All the world is accountable to God that they are sinners who have lived their life independent to the stated standards that God gives us in the law. In verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There is a dynamic pre-conversion purpose of the law. The law is to expose the reality of your spiritual condition, which is a dead sinner who cannot save himself or herself. But God never gave us some sort of formula for fixing that other than faith alone in Christ alone and his death and resurrection alone. And by the way, if you're here today and your formula for salvation is something like you think you're, you're a good person or if your formula for salvation is trying to keep the Ten Commandments, I need to tell you something real quick. If you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments to get into heaven, you're missing the point. There are 613 commandments, and all of them must be kept perfectly. For you New Testament believers, don't feel bad. You have a 1,150 commandments in the New Testament. You can't get saved through commandments. You can't get saved through sacraments. I don't care if you're baptized, sanitized, or deodorized. You only get saved by faith alone in Christ 
alone. So he wanted Paul, Paul wanted Peter to make sure he understood that we are justified and we know it from experience, not from keeping the law. We know from experience that we were saved, saved only by faith and faith alone. Well, let me draw your attention to verse 17. Very difficult passage, by the way. I always love it when I turn to a commentary. I break it down in the original language, and then I turn to other commentators, and they say there are 15 different understandings of this passage. And I scream at the commentary, well, which one is right? But they want me to figure it out. So I've been laboring over verse 17 for some time. Um, we'll give you the results <laughs> of the labor. Take a look at 317. Now again, this is a part of his, the content of his argument. He says, but if, in contrast, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. It seems that what Paul was doing here was answering an objection that was raised by the party of the circumcised. That if you eliminate the law-keeping aspect, you're going to have people who, attain, who think they've attained a position of right standing with God, but are absence of a desire to obey the moral and ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament. So the argument would go something like this. Your doctrine of justification by faith alone is dangerous because it, it eliminates the obligation to keep the law. You also eliminate a man's sense of moral responsibility and accountability. If they think that they're right standing with God, what is the dynamic for their obedience? And the Bible answers that. For the truly converted, the dynamic of our obedience is love, not obligation, not a sense of overwhelming, oppressive responsibility, but love for God. He owns our supreme affection, and as a result of that, we obey. So, what moves us toward being morally responsible? And the answer is love. And besides that, you know what he says in verse 18? He says, let me tell you, Paul says, you know who the true transgressor is? Who's the one who's really a sinner here? Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor, or as one translation has it, rather I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law I've already torn down. The person who is the sinner is the person who wants to revert to a works righteous system after tasting the gospel of grace. If someone who approached justification by faith alone abandoned that approach and rebuilt or renewed the old approach of attempting to secure justification by faith, by the law, rather, um, and, and keeping that and it's, all of that kind of stuff, it results in you being a transgressor of what God says. God says you're justified not by keeping the law, but by faith. God never gave us the law as a means of getting us right. 
So finally, Paul concludes this rebuke. And uh, he's going to conclude it with passages that are familiar to you. But let me just kind of give you a little hint here. They're familiar to you, but they're often not used in the context of the rebuke. They're a part of the rebuke. This is the conclusion of his rebuke. Take a look at verse 19. For through the law I have died to the law so that I might live to God. I might die to the law. Now that Paul is justified by faith alone in Christ alone, he is now dead to the law, unresponsive to the ceremonial law with its dietary demands and its mandated festivals and its rituals as a means of getting right with God. He's dead to that. He's unresponsive to that. And in that death, there's now a freedom to obey the law, not because I'm trying to use it to get saved, but because I am saved. I want to conform to the moral mandates of God because I know him as my Lord and Savior. Paul discovered that he could now live for the Lord freely because he was not under the heavy burden of law-keeping. He's now compelled to live for him because he loves him. Listen to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, folks. This is really critical. For this is love for God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So what turned duty into delight? You love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's because you love him, not because you're trying to work salvation in some way. You have it already. Not because you're looking for a position of right standing. You have it already. But because you love him. And then he says something that's very familiar to many of us, but we don't always read it in the context of the rebuke. Verse 20. You're all familiar with this. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the mindset. This is the perspective of the truly converted. They understand that they don't live for themselves anymore. They've been bought with a price. And that price was the shed blood of Christ. As one commentator put it, this means the end of me as a sinner in God's sight. It means the end of me as a person seeking to merit or earn salvation by my own efforts. It means the end of me as a child of Adam, a man under the condemnation of the law as my old regenerated self. The old I has been crucified. It no longer has a claim on directing my daily life. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that Paul now lived, he lived it with debt to self and alive to Christ because he lives in the presence of the person by the presence of the Holy Spirit who enables them to live for Christ. 
So as a believer, I live my faith in the flesh or live by faith as I function in the flesh. Faith in the Son of God. That means every day in my existence, I function trusting Christ to lead me, to guide me, to direct me, to help me, to nourish my soul. I don't belong to myself. Do you understand that? You don't belong to yourself. Let me show you a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to bring this to a close here with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, in verse 14. Yeah, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. <laughs> Did you ever think about that, my brothers and sisters in Christ? Your current life is not about you. Your current life is not about you. It's about Christ. Christ paid the price. He redeemed you. He set you free. Matter of fact, take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Paul wraps it up with a stunning, startling statement. In verse 21, the final thing he says he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Nullify means to render something ineffective. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. When Jesus was in the garden, he was in agony hours away from being arrested, taken to the cross. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He prayed that three times. In his humanness, he was sensing the horrific agony of the, uh, the, the most brutal form of capital punishment ever devised by humanity, which is the crucifixion. And my perfect, righteous, heavenly Father heard that prayer from his perfectly righteous Son. Three times he prayed it in the garden. And the answer to the prayer was, no, my will is for you to go to the cross. Now, folks, why I tell you that story in conclusion here is because if there was another way Shouldn't it have been revealed at that moment? Shouldn't 
that moment when the perfectly righteous Christ who had never committed any sin was about to take sin and its punishment on himself, shouldn't that formula been revealed in that moment? But the answer is no. He had to go to the cross. He went to the cross. And now it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. By the way, if you want racial reconciliation, can I tell you what the Bible says, how you achieve it? It's through the gospel. It's through people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't know why the church has to turn to the world to get its formula for how to do that when the Bible says, here's the formula. When I've been studying the book of Revelation and I've looked into people in heaven, guess what I see in heaven in the book of Revelation? People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue together as one in Christ. And there's no laws, human laws. There's no human system that can make that happen. It's the gospel. Preach the gospel. Trust the gospel. Let people know the gospel. And unity is the end result. Let's pray. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this story and what it teaches us. Lord, may it have its impact upon us. May we leave this church different than the way we came. May our perspective be transformed. May it conform with the scripture and not with the secular notions of our day. May we understand that this is such a marvelous gift, salvation, and that it can only be received on the basis of faith. Bless these people from Cape Chapel, Bible Chapel. Bless them abundantly, Lord. I thank you for them, my brothers and sisters here in Cape Girardeau. Uh, I just thank you that this church is here as a light to its community and help them to stand fast and maintain the purity of the doctrines that make up our faith. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.